Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 323rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning as my co-host is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association, Holly Louie. Holly is substituting for Dr. Erica Reamer, who is on assignment. Good morning, Holly. Good morning, Chuck. Hello, everyone. This morning, our lead story is about the proposed new ICD-10 code changes. That's right. Last Tuesday, CMS posted the 2019 Medicare Inpatient Prospective Payment System proposed rules. And uh, Lori Johnson is going to be reporting the proposed changes later in today's broadcast. Speaking of CMS, former CMS career professional Stanley Nockamson is back with his popular Reg Watch segment. Yes, indeed, it is very popular. And Stan is going to be reporting on a proposed rule on EHR meaningful use for hospitals. And, of course, the segment today should always be meaningful. Speaking of meaningful, Terry Fletcher is back again with part two of her series on the errors she's uncovered in her auditing physician documentation. And our special guest this morning is the President and CEO for Weedy, that's Charles Steller. He's going to report on interoperability issues associated with exchanging data and standing by to report on the National Physician Advisor Conference is Dr. Charles Locke. He's with John Hopkins School of Medicine. We have much to report this morning, and we begin with the aforementioned Dr. Charles Locke, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to listen to an on-demand webcast on the ICD-10 coding of Parkinson's disease. It features Gloria Ann Bryant. Here now is Dr. Charles Locke. Thank you, Chuck. And I'm happy to be reporting live from Greenville, South Carolina, for the National Physician Advisors Conference, NPAC 2018. The weather and venue couldn't be better, warm and sunny with no humidity, in bustling downtown Greenville with its tree-lined streets filled with shops, restaurants, and hotels. For those of you who don't know, the NPAC conference began as the Southeastern Physician Advisors Symposium seven years ago. It was the brainchild of Dr. Nick Ulmer, physician advisor of the Spartansburg Regional Health System. The first conference had 52 attendees. This year's record-breaking conference has 300 attendees and is two and a half days filled with lectures and panel discussions with faculty from throughout the country. Monday sessions included sessions on the basics of of the physician advisor role and understanding of Medicare Part A versus Part B inpatient patient versus outpatient status, observation services, the two-midnight rule, condition code 44, and hospital-initiated notices of non-coverage, also known as the HIN. Dr. Howie Stein, uh, an ACPA board member, then presented a talk on multidisciplinary rounds and how they work at his hospital. Dr. Stein showed how physician advisors lead multi-D rounds, uh, and they can, how they can be the backbone for excellent utilization, economic, and quality metrics in any organizations. One of the day's highlights was Day Egusquiza's talk on utilization management and case management in the emergency department. Day is a dynamic speaker whose passion for ensuring that hospitals receive the revenue that they deserve is well known. Day described how approximately 65% of all patients who end up bedded come through the ED and how placing UM in the ED can identify many wins by translating in real-time payer rules when assessing every patient at the first point of contact. 
having a payer matrix for all the contract rules is paramount and allows for easy reference when the ED is busy and patient management and disposition decisions have to be made in a timely manner. Day's talk really highlighted the importance of import of case management in the current U.S. healthcare system with the multitude of payers, each with different rules and, and benefits. Dr. Nick Ulmer, again the director of this year's conference, lectured on quality metrics and how quality is viewed across the spectrum of healthcare in the outpatient and inpatient settings. I always had my eye on CMS star rankings and the like, but I was stunned to learn how important social media is when it comes to what patients think of their caregivers. The day ended with panel discussions of the day's presenters responding to audience questions. The tremendous number of audience questions spoke to the engagement and interest of the audience. Tuesday and Wednesday of the conference include breakfast breakout sessions led by experts in the area of medical necessity, Medicare administrative contractors, Medicare and Medicare Advantage plans. These breakout sessions are small and interactive enough to allow attendees to drill down on questions and concerns they have on specific issues and be able to bring real change and improvement back to their institutions. Finally, I would be remiss if I did not mention that on today and tomorrow's jam-packed agenda, the redoubtable Dr. Ron Hirsch, well-known to all Monday Monitor listeners, is on the slate to give two lectures, an overview of the PEPR and an update on what's new with Medicare administrative and auditing organizations. That's it for me, Chuck. Hope to see everyone at NPAC 2019. Thank you very much, Dr. Locke. That was Dr. Charles Locke. Dr. Locke is a senior physician advisor of care coordination at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He's also the assistant professor of medicine there. It's Tuesday. It's May 1st, 2018, and you're listening to the 323rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD-10 Monitor inviting you to register for an upcoming webcast on COPD. COPD affects more than 5 million Americans. Understanding the disease process and the interrelationship with emphysema, bronchitis, and asthma is important for accurate coding. This chronic condition requires clear, specific, and accurate documentation to assign the appropriate codes, as you'll learn in this webcast by Gloria Ann Bryant. Become more familiar with guidelines to help you code COPD. Register now to attend this important webcast. Learn how to accurately and compliantly code and document COPD. It's Thursday, May 24th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. To register, simply click on the ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Nationally recognized coding and documentation authority Terry Fletcher is with us this morning to report on errors that she is uncovering in a review of more than 1,000 records. Here now is Terry Fletcher. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. As I discussed in part one of our series on physician documentation issues during an audit, errors can occur on both sides, physician documentation and the assignment of codes. But it is an ongoing process. Physicians and physician extenders alike get busy and overwhelmed treating patients with their ever-increasing volumes and even with the assistance of electronic health record, deficiencies will happen. I believe it has to do with the lack of training, education on E&M, and really understanding the E&M components. So, for example, if you look at the history component of an E&M encounter, this element is where the medical necessity of an encounter begins. It can lay the groundwork for the physician's right to move forward with the exam and medical decision-making. Without a well-documented patient history, it would be hard to justify moving forward with an extensively documented record. There would be no basis for it. 
In an open call to CMS on March 21st regarding potential changes to E&M documentation guidelines, I heard many physicians of different specialties trying to make an argument that the history component of a medical record should be eliminated. This actually makes no sense to me as the history can be most important aspect of the medical record. Both the 1995 and 97 AMA CPT documentation guidelines require a history beginning with the chief complaint, the medically necessary reason the patient needs to meet with the physician. If there's no chief complaint or no acute or chronic condition the patient is being seen for, then the service may be considered preventative. A chief complaint is a statement typically in the patient's own words, so it's such as, my knee hurts or I have chest pain, and on occasion the reason for the visit is follow-up, but if the record only states patient here for follow-up, it's an incomplete chief complaint, and the auditor may not even continue with the record and negate its value altogether. So it is imperative for the provider to be specific in their documentation, saying something, for example, patient here for follow-up for their sprained knee or patient here for follow-up for their hypertension management. If the chief complaint is a chronic condition, which is also an allowable chief complaint entry, one word that, it, that every audit tool has in direction in regard to coding and documenting a chronic condition is the word status of. I found that most physicians that forego the sign or symptom complaint for three chronic conditions tend to forget that it must include status of the condition or it does not count as a chief complaint. So, for example, if your physician is going to document patient here for follow-up for hypertension, diabetes, and high cholesterol is a chief complaint that actually is not sufficient enough for three chronic conditions. You would have to say something to the effect of hypertension compared to last visit is well-controlled with ACE inhibitors and diet modifications, type 1 diabetes, insulin-dependent without complications, and has been better about managing uh, his sugars, or hyperlipidemia controlled with Lipitor and some mild diet and exercise changes. When the physician documents this kind of detail in the record, the auditor will have a better understanding of the total health picture on the patient without having to search out the entire record for more information. When a chief complaint is a sign or symptom, the physician is supposed to ask questions to get a complete description and chronological account of the problem to be treated. Also, according to CMS, the HPI, History of Present Illness, must be documented by the physician and cannot be documented by ancillary staff. As an auditor, I see this being documented by medical assistants often, and that's not appropriate. These timeline questions the physician goes through may prompt a further discussion of the problem or may uncover a potential underlying cause or condition that only a physician's expertise can extrapolate. Ancillary staff can take vitals and the review of systems information sheet for the medical record, but the HPI is a physician's responsibility. In the 1995 and 97 guidelines, the eight HPI components are location, quality, severity, duration, timing, context, modifying factors, and associated sign or symptoms. The number of components documented for the HPI will determine the HPI level at either brief or extended. An example of how I would grade or score a physician in his, in his or her HPI based on a chief complaint would be the following. So brief would be one to three HPI elements. Patient is here for knee pain lasting two weeks. I got location, knee, and duration for two weeks. That's only two. That would be brief. But if the physician said, patient is here for intermittent knee pain, uh, lasting two weeks, she states that it's dull ache type pain that increases when she runs or stands for a long period of time. I've got timing, intermittent, location, knee. I've got duration, lasting two weeks. I've got quality, dull ache type pain. And I've got a modifying factor of when it happens. This is to illustrate how leaving out important elements of documentation could change the level of service and possibly lose re revenue if you're not accurate. 
And then the discussion is not to encourage adding HPI elements to increase the E&M level of service, but really to enlighten providers that leaving out components which you're probably already providing from the history portion of the encounter or not taking the time to be efficient in the documentation can lead to failing an audit, inaccurate scores and audits, and lowered reimbursements. Auditors are bound by documentation rules, and physicians need to be aware those rules are for the protection of the patient and the completeness of the record, but also to assist the physician as a prompt during the encounter, as not to miss out on information that may be directly or indirectly related to the encounter, and to help support medical necessity. In Part 3 next week, we'll look at your EMR and make sure it's protecting you from an audit and not hurting you in our continued series of auditing pitfalls. Holly, back over to you. Thank you so much. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck, what's next? Well, Holly, uh, thanks for asking what's next. And I did want to thank Terry Fletcher again for that great report. She has a four-part series on auditing issues on physician documentation. You can read part one on her website at icdsnmonitor.com. Holly, in response to your question, what's next? Well, it's our regulatory segment featuring Talk 10 Tuesday's healthcare industry expert, Stanley Knox. Good morning, Stanley. So what's the latest coming out of Washington? Chuck, a lot of stuff coming out of CMS. I like to title it, So Many Rules, uh, So Little Time. Proposed rules for paying providers in the 2019 uh, year has just been issued by CMS. I think it's led by the inpatient prospective payment system rule that applies to uh, hospitals. I know we're going to have uh, some details on the coding changes for that, but I want to talk about a couple of other major changes. CMS is proposing some big changes to the EHR incentive program. We are retiring the, the term meaningful use, and the program will now be called promoting interoperability. And that's a priority that the Office of the National Coordinator and CMS had for uh, this year, trying to get better interoperability among uh, health plans, providers, and patients. So the focus of the program will be on measures that require the exchange of health information between providers and patients. The program beginning in 2019, again, this is a proposal, uh, hospitals will be scored under a different methodology that combines some new and existing stage three measures. They'll be broken into a smaller set of objectives and they'll be uh, scoring based on both performance and participation. Uh, there'll be a reduction in burden, in burden for reporting. The other thing that's, I think, very interesting in the proposed rule is that effective January 1st, 2019, Medicare will require hospitals to post online a list of their current standard charges and update them annually. So there will be an opportunity for individuals to see the standard charges from each of their hospitals, each of the hospitals that they may be choosing to uh, be treated in and make some choices based on hospital costs. In addition, the uh, Medicare Quality Program for Hospitals, the Hospital Quality Diabase Purchasing Program, there'll be some significant measure changes. CMS announced a meaningful measure framework in the fall of 2017, removing some measures that are no longer relevant. CMS will be removing a total of 19 uh, measures. They will also be uh, deduplicating a lot of measures, and they're revising some of the domain weighting. There is also an update uh, on accounting for social risk factors in the context of value-based purchasing programs. 
CMS has found that dual eligibility, that is eligibility for Medicare and Medicaid together, is the most powerful predictor of poor health outcomes, and they want to include certain measures uh, by patients' dual eligible status beginning in the fall of 2018 in some of the feedback reports. So that's just on the inpatient hospital side. Now, CMS has also proposed four rules for a whole series of other types of providers. We've got rules for SNFs, skilled nursing facilities, and inpatient rehab facilities, rules for inpatient psychiatric facilities, and rules for the payment for hospices. In all of these rules, including the inpatient side, CMS is proposing a request for information. They're asking stakeholders to help them determine what the best way is for achieving the exchange of information between these types of providers and beneficiaries. So they're really looking for industry help in, in making data more and more interoperable. They've also changed a number of the quality programs and changing the rates for these particular types of providers. I think one very interesting announcement that CMS made, they're proposing to allow doctors to bill patients directly and actually contract with Medicare patients to handle their care, rather than doctors submitting claims to Medicare contractors based on a fee-for-service basis. The doctors will be getting sort of an upfront payment from Medicare as well as from the patients themselves, and the patients can contract directly with the doctors. So a lot of exciting announcements. Uh, Holly, back to you. Thanks so much, Stan. That was Stan Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Our lead story this morning is about the ICD-10 new code changes in the 2019 Medicare Inpatient Prospective Payment System proposal. It was released last Tuesday. Here now to report on those changes is Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. Uh, Lori, what can we learn from these new changes? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Holly. There was a lot of information, as you said, in the proposed rule that for inpatient prospective payment that was released um, last Tuesday. In total, there's 1,883 pages to review. Um, One little snippet is that the coding and documentation adjustment, which we have followed over the recent years, is actually a positive adjustment this year of 0.5%. And if you want to make comments on proposed rule, they are due by June 25th, 2018 at 5 o'clock. Um, I want to focus on the changes that are being proposed for the MSDRG system. Um, There are a number of proposals that were made, and maybe 50% of them have been adopted. So let's start at the beginning. Um, MSDRGs 1 and 2, there were a number of concerns with regards to this DRG and specifically around the accurate coding for the left ventricle assistive device. Um, And they're going to continue to monitor that coding as well as the data that is is in MSDRGs 1, 2, 215, 268, and 269. The next proposed change I'd like to talk about is laryngectomies, which are found in MSDRGs 11, 12, and 13. Um, CMS is making a change to this title so that 
people who use the data will know that laryngectomy is part of that methodology. Another proposed change is the for chimeric antigen receptor, or CAR, T-cell therapy. There are two procedure codes that are going to be added to the methodology for MSDRG-16, and the procedure codes are XW033C3 and XW043C3. So, so that in that title for DRG-16 will be changing to include T-cell immunotherapy. So, again, those are codes that you want to make sure that you're assigning. Um, in MDC-1, the, which is diseases of the nervous system, they're making uh, a change with epilepsy with a neurostimulator. They're adding two diagnosis codes to MSDRG-23, and these diagnosis codes are G40.109 and G40.111. We also are going to move down to MDC-5, which is disease of the circulatory system, and they are now going to move all of the insertion of pacemaker device or lead into MSDRGs 260 to 262, and it should be noted that this um, would include the leadless pacemakers as well. Moving on to MDC-6, which is disease of the digestive disorder, there are two, there are, uh, I'm sorry, there's one diagnosis code, D17.71, which is going to move from MSDRG-393 to 395, which is um, other digestive diseases to where it probably belongs because it's a, a kidney neoplasm. Um, to DRGs 686 to 688, which is the kidney and other urinary tract neoplasm DRGs. They are making some changes to bowel procedures. There are 12 ICD-10 PCS codes, which include open and laparoscopic approaches for repair of colon or reposition of the uh, large and small intestines. Um, they're moving those from 329 um, to three, 329 to 331 to 344 to 346. Let me. Um, there's two areas I really want to call attention to is the spinal fusion. There have been identified 99 clinically invalid codes um, that are going to be removed from the classification system. And what I mean that is that it has a device character of no device. And according to Coding Clinic, we must have an inner body fusion device or a bone graft to be considered a spinal fusion. So in the review of the data, there were six, over 16,000 cases that were reported um, of a spinal fusion with no device. So that's going to be fixed, um, and it's something you may want to look at in your own data is that those are incorrectly assigned. So there's more changes, but I just want to quickly talk about the code changes for between fiscal year 18 and fiscal year 19 for the diagnosis codes. They're going to add 198, which means there's 71,902 codes that will be for diagnosis. And the difference between 18 and 19 for procedure codes 
is actually a reduction of 172 codes. So the total PCS codes are 78,533. So Again, I think we're starting to see the slowdown of the codes um, that are added to the ICD-10 classification system. So lots of changes, more to report there, but back to you, Holly. Thank you, Laurie. Laurie is a Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC, and an ICD-10 Monitor Contributor. Chuck? Thanks, Holly, and Laurie, thanks very much. Uh, by the way, you can hear today's live broadcast on demand anytime, anywhere, and it's absolutely free. You can listen to us on Stitcher. You can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google. We're honored this morning to have one of the luminaries in healthcare on our broadcast. He has a distinguished career as past executive vice president of the American Health Insurance Plans, AHIP, among other renowned associations. He is the president and CEO for Weedy. That stands for the Workgroup for Electronic Data Interchange. So please join me in welcoming Charles Steller, who reports this morning on the interoperability issue of exchanging data on different systems and different software applications. Good morning, Charles. Welcome to the program. It seems like interoperability is kind of a timeless issue. Absolutely. And thank you, Chuck. And good morning, Holly. Um, it, promoting interoperability in healthcare is getting increased attention again. And for this, we should celebrate. We've talked about interoperability for years and struggled with systems that don't communicate. And we all apologize to our family and friends who complain to us that they can't get access to their own healthcare information. And none of their apps seem to communicate. My response is yes, patient and consumers should have full access to their electronic health information to the fullest extent. And this also goes for the doctors and hospitals to help them deliver smarter, safer, and more efficient care. This is much of what has driven Weedy's agenda over the years, finding ways to close the gaps in administrative simplification issues and to work on each problem that could obstruct a fully functioning system. We continue to see both private and public industry sectors working across the aisles to facilitate seamless healthcare exchange between a multitude of health IT systems to coordinate care across various healthcare settings. But I still can't announce victory to my friends who just can't find a way to bring all of their information together in one place, continuously updated and ready to act on their behalf as a healthcare consumer. Years of healthcare interoperability initiatives, healthcare data exchange frameworks, and health IT standards have yielded considerable improvements in proliferating efficient information exchange. So why is this important? On the technical side of things, Interoperability helps reduce the time it takes to have useful conversations between providers as well as between doctors and their hospitals. This leads to increased patient engagement, better outcomes, since less more time is spent on treating the actual illness or injury. Do we need to fill out one more questionnaire about our medical history, our address, our insurance carrier, our medications, and such? I would say no. Interoperability in healthcare is designed to boost efficiency when data is presented on a consistent basis, no matter what the source is easier for practitioners 
to quickly get to the heart of the matter as they make decisions about treatment. Continuity of care is crucial, whether for chronic conditions or taking care of an acute situation. Interoperability enables safer transitions of care, which leads to better patient outcomes. And lowering costs, interoperability means that more useful information can be shared in a timely fashion. So the data from a patient with a lab and other tests need to all, do, need not to be duplicated, costing the system, costing the patient pain and grief. Dr. Rucker took over the helm at ONC's National Coordinator for Health Information Technology early last year. Uh, he very quickly made it clear that this was a top priority. Looking at the work that Dr. Rucker has done um, earlier, uh, we say, great, um, we are on the pathway again to addressing some of these issues. Um, CMS has um, renamed their Meaningful Use Program in an effort to strengthen interoperability while making the program less burdensome. Um, their uh, AONC has announced their interoperability efforts are focusing on application programming interfaces, or APIs, so patients can access and eventually house their health information currently held by various providers in a single and secure platform. Dr. Rucker argues um, what makes our smartphone so powerful is the multitude of apps and software programs that use open and accessible um, uh, systems. The more providers we have, the more portals we need to make and bring this together. Um, the key takeaways is interoperability has to do with the way we communicate. Standards established by government and industry help foster and better communicate between systems. Interoperability in terms of healthcare makes it easier for us to share information, more efficiency, avoiding orders for redundant patient tests, safety and the protection of confidential patient information, and lowered costs as a natural result of improved interoperability in healthcare. Thanks, and uh, back to you, Holly. Thank you, Charles. That was the President and CEO for Weedy, Charles Steller. Thanks, Holly, and thank you very much, Charles, for being with us today on Talk Dan Tuesday. That's going to be a wrap for this, our 323rd edition of Talk Dan Tuesday. And Holly, Louie, and I want to thank our special guests today, Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Dr. Charles Locke, Stanley Knoxon, and Charles Steller from Weeding, and we hope you're going to be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Holly, Louie, and everyone here at Talk Ten Tuesday Night. You just monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Talk Ten Tuesday is a production of ICD Ten Monitor.